This is Imperial Voice, streaming from the palace of His Imperial Majesty, Haile Selassie. We clearly do have an actual problem of deliberate policies being implemented which cause real suffering on racial grounds, don't we? We do. This was a moment that we will be talking about for a very long time. Welcome to Imperial Voice, coming to you as if from Fairfield House Bath, former home of His Imperial Majesty Haile Selassie I. This is In Our City. I'm Oluwato Sin, Onileri. I'm William Heath. Last Sunday, with over 200 Black Lives Matter events around the UK, protesters tore down a controversial statue of the slave trader Edward Colston and dropped it in Bristol Harbour. So after years of civic vacillation, you had clunk, splosh, bubble, bubble, bubble. It was a very dramatic, brief event. And it raises a lot of questions about history, identity, art, heritage, justice, democracy, law and order. Where do we start? Tozin and I have two special guests today. Melissa Gustin from the Henry Moore Institute, University of York, is a historian of 19th century sculpture. And we also have with us Samuel Williams, who is the Conservative Party's prospective candidate for Bristol mayor. Thank you for joining us. Samuel, you mentioned that you went to Bristol on school trips. Yeah, so that, you know, we, we would go up, uh, up and down to Bristol to four things like uh, researching the slave trade uh, is, it were reasons to come down or uh, to the exploratory as it was then, uh, now sort of become uh, We the Curious, the science uh, centre and things like that. So, so Bristol was, was down the road for us and a source of information and education. So you had an awareness of Colston, obviously from these school trips. Do you remember the experience? How did it make you feel at the time? At the time, I don't have any um, strong feelings, strong memories of, uh, of Colston as a person um, during those, those trips. And I think for me, that's part of the issue we're explore, exploring here, the fact that there was this statue that, uh, standing on a plinth, pride of place, that actually failed to have any real educational value, which is what some people say it did, and that's why it should stay. But there was, there was no real educational value, unless you were going for the deliberate reason with, uh, with a historian or with a teacher to explain who he was and, and why he was important. And you see, then it depended on that teacher or that historian 
painting the full picture of history rather than the uh, the version of history that uh, I think Colston himself would like us to remember, which it was were his philanthropic activities and not the way he made his money. So Melissa, is that one of the Victorian st statues you'd like to see continuing to dominate a city space. What, what does that statue say to you? The statue to me says that the late Victorian, so 1895 community, wanted to commemorate somebody who they felt had given a significant amount of money and culture to their city. And what was interesting, I was reading about this, at the time, it was supposed to be put up under a public subscription. So they enlisted public donations for the sculpture. They didn't get enough. So it doesn't seem to me that even in 1895, there was a huge public demand for this sculpture to be installed. And in 1895, that's a significant period after the abolition of slavery. It's a significant period after he had died. So it's not a statue that is a deeply, it's not connected immediately to his life. And it's not a particularly important artistic sculpture. It's broadly fine. Um, but with the lack of contextualization, from the period, it does come across as a late attempt to whitewash what was recognized even then as a deeply challenging and complicated history. So as a Victorian sculpture specialist, I don't think it necessarily needs to stay in the public sphere on an uncontested, uncontextualized plinth. You, you use the word whitewash, and I'm, I'm, I'm just worried about the vocabulary. I, I see the Daily Mail's running a big piece saying, oh, well, history isn't black and white. And you just think, well, hang on a minute. We, we need kind of different vocabulary to address these questions because in this context, the terms are quite loaded. So, so you, we don't feel it has an important place in Victorian art. And you've, you've, you've severed the time of, of creation of the sculpture from the time of origin, and you feel that Bristol Society had its doubts about it at the time that it was put up, even. Yeah, it's it's a fine statue. It, the, the English Heritage Listing Organization described it as handsome and said that it was, you know, skillfully balanced the 18th century costume with contemporary aesthetic styles and they're not wrong it's a it's a decent commemorative statue i've seen worse um but it's definitely not so artistically important that that alone would merit its continued display in a public space perhaps rather than whitewash sanitize yeah. or um what's the what's the phrase that erase the history there's there may have been an effort at the time to re-emphasize the positives that Colston did with his money rather than telling a fuller story through that label. I mean, Colston does have his advocates, doesn't he? I mean, uh, there's uh, the Conservative councillor, Richard Eddy, who's been very vociferous on this, describes him as, as a hero and clearly feels very, very positively that that this is a figure that should be memorialized. 
Uh, is that yeah, something... so let me, let me ask you, Samuel, um, both as a work of art and on an emotional level, how do you rate that, the statue? Did you ever stand at it and, and look at it and think, even now as an adult man, before um, the um, incidents on Saturday, did you ever stand and look at it and, and have any emotions? Did it rouse anything in you? In all honesty, no, it didn't. Um, because I recognise that history is a, a mixed tableau uh, of paradox. And I think it's really important that we recognise that the human condition is paradoxical. We are both happy and sad at the same time. We're good and bad at the same time. It's not this binary choice that we spend so much time trying to present that it is in, it's particularly in politics, but within the media and, and many other outlets. You know, we've got to recognise that Colston was a paradox in and of himself. He, uh, he made his money. He was a wealthy businessman, like on the, on the basic basic level he was a wealthy businessman who walked this very thin line of moral uh moral well repugnant morals really but legal at the time in order to maximize profit now there are many business people doing the very same thing today i'd say rather than the trade being human bodies now it's probably the commodification of the environment and uh the immorality around uh, how we're treating the environment uh, to maximise profit. But there is the same business practices happening today. And there are the same conversations that have been happening with modern business people as well. The Sacklers, for instance, come to mind and their connection and production of, um, of that drug and, and the result of, uh, resulting addiction. But their names are plastered across museums and various things with great control. Well, a lot of museums have removed their names. They have, from... they have. exactly right. Yeah. Exactly right. So, should the same thing be done to Colston? I, for me, I think we need to understand what, what Colston was doing there. Was he there as an educational piece? Uh, well, no, because the, the, the educational plaques, the, the, the background was not presented. Was he there as a fine piece of architecture or, or art? Well, as we've heard from Melissa, to an extent, but not really. So we've got to ask, well, what, what was he doing there in pride of place? Well, because he gave a lot of money to Bristol and did a lot of good for Bristolians through that money. Like, let's not take that away from the fact. He did a lot of good and continues. That, that legacy continues to do good in education, hospitals, churches, various things. Let's not take that away. Do you not think that a lot of these guys, these um, philanthropists, attempt to um, redeem themselves, in a sense, and also try to immortalise themselves? It's not really about their trying to do good because they are good people. It is because they are trying to um, carve their name in history. It's not about their intrinsic goodness. Epstein gave money in bucket loads he's a bad person should we memorialize someone like him simply because he gave a lot of money it's uh, it's such a uh, sorry to uh, jump in on that and uh, um, melissa will have something to say as well i'm sure but it, it, i think it's a really problematic 
area, isn't it? Philanthropy, actually. I've worked significantly um, across business and the not-for-profit sector, um, a lot with uh, business people and uh, philanthropists. And it's a question that is constantly asked around philanthropic, philanthropic immortality, as you say. Actually, we can buy our, our place in the history books. And it's not really to do good, but uh, because it's really about power and control and, uh, and all of those kind of things. But let's also realise that people have been benefited uh, by, by them giving money. So it, this is why we need to allow times for the nuanced conversation and not a 200 character or tweet or whatever a, a tweet is, because it just doesn't capture the reality of, of this kind of conversation. So it is generally, it's, it's often recognized that philanthropists, especially um, people whose money may be seen to come from controversial or problematic sources, do try to buy a better reputation. A lot of the people involved in the trade in Bristol, in Plymouth, in a lot of the port cities, were not only trying to buy a better reputation, but were trying to buy themselves class by demonstrating that they were using their new money to benefit others, to wipe away the fact that they had not come from the aristocracy originally, to emphasize that they had ascended their quote-unquote lower class backgrounds, and that this is something that continues today. And the art that gets put up to commemorate these people is absolutely there, as Samuel said, in an attempt to buy a place in history. And what doesn't necessarily follow through with that is that that history has to remain the history that they claimed. So that historians, you know, maybe in the immediate moments that we're in right now, we're not necessarily in a clear headspace, as it were, to identify what the ongoing historical impact of these, these days is going to be. But what's definitely at issue is that the people who put up the statue in 1895 or similar commemorative works in St. Paul's or in London don't necessarily have an intrinsic right to continue to write their own history. It doesn't have to remain that sort of attempt to sanitize themselves or elevate themselves in an uncritical way. So I'm liking uh, Samuel's language that this is not a binary choice. I think that's superior language, thank you. Uh, and I think it is a paradox. I think what I'm hearing is that this is, you know, an ugly monument to the love of money and to the power that money has. And I think the story, you rightly point out that his activities were conducted in a lawful way, just as, you know, um, surveillance capitalism or whatever is the predominant model today is also lawful, um, if exploitative. And I, I mean, isn't it the case that, that that law at that time looks a pretty sorry sight? but also that contemporary democracy in Bristol proved pretty ineffective. I mean, the, the civic discourse in Bristol was not effective enough to address this uh, question 
quickly enough. And so you had what the group, of, uh, the, what the protesters did on the day, and then you had the police response, which we'll come to now. I mean, isn't that, isn't that the case? I think that's perfectly reasonable to say. Yes, it is. The, this conversation about the Colston and about the statue has been going on for years and, and not just limited to the statue, of course, road names and Colston Hall and, you know, and, and there's been conversations about other things like White Ladies Road and Black Boy Hill and, you know, all of this conversation about how we, um, how we paint the picture of our history across our public spaces and cities has been going on for a long time. But uh, particularly around this statue, there has been real concern for over 20 years, uh, probably longer. And, uh, and yet city leadership has failed, in my view, to actually air that conversation properly to the, to the depth um, that it needs to take so that it starts to understand the, understand the feeling that comes from uh, seeing a person who has made his money through the exploitation of people who look like you. And I think that's the, that's the issue. For me, there's this, this, this balance, isn't there, between the, do the ends justify the means? And well, the means were the exploitation enslavement of thousands of black Africans. The ends were hospitals and churches and, and that sort of stuff. And that it seems like, and, it, and the message I think that that statue portrays is we value, we place greater value on hospitals and churches and schools than on the dead bodies of black Africans. And that's where it's so problematic. And that's the conversation we should have been having, honestly, without pointing fingers, but just honestly, as a city, decades ago. Certainly, probably most helpfully, uh, when w the bicentenary, the, two, the 200 years after slavery, that would have been the more natural point to have had that conversation and probably take the statue down at that point. So what I'm getting from this is that you appreciate um, or perhaps empathize with the protesters in their frustration because in a sense they had tried to do things the right way and it fell on deaf ears. Yeah, that, that, that is right to say. I, I disagree, fundamentally I do disagree that it was pulled down. Um, I, and actually I do also think that it was criminal damage and I think it's probably reasonable as well that the police inquire into that and take the necessary action. But I do, yeah, I do empathize with the feeling and the feeling of frustration that democracy, uh, the democratic route had been sought, and we have a representational democracy. And yet there was a voice that was frustrated because it wasn't being represented. And I think, I think it's also worth saying that there have been um, petitions for, for many years. They've never reached that significant numbers. They've never reached a significant a number to uh, show a majority and reduce, uh, re remove the statue but they have continued for a significant amount of time. And therefore I think there should have been proper conversation and, and credence given to the, to the conversation because of the duration, the issue has been clearly uh, held within council and known to council and other city leaders. So Melissa, do you think the protesters did the right thing? I, 
as a historian, I think they did a thing that has happened before and will continue to happen. I, I think they, it's a flashpoint that it, if it wasn't this statue, it would have been a different one, just as it was in the United States a few years ago with the Silent Sam monument in Durham. Um, whether or not it was a right thing, I mean, I found it electrifying to watch the videos. It did feel like watching history in the making, that this was a moment that we will be talking about for a very long time. Um, and as Samuel rightly pointed out, the democratic and sort of correct channels had been tried and tried and stymied by my understanding through private intercession or private a private organization that's not democratical had prevented meaningful dialogue from being installed and i believe it was the tory councillor who's i'm sorry i can't remember his name richard eddie richard eddie yes. yeah he, he, he wrote you. to us about he introduced us to samuel for which we're very grateful <laughs> he he had originally said when the plaque there was new wording for the plaque and that this was then watered down by organizations um but he would not have been surprised if the new newly phrased plaque was vandalized or removed so i found it very interesting that he had said that in what seemed to be quite a an understanding and at least expectative mode that an insufficient intervention would then be superseded by an undemocratic or a people's response. Um, that definitely happened on Sunday. Um, I think the police, I'm not a police person, I'm not a strategist. I think when they decided not to intervene in the events, that was probably the right choice because their non-intervention in the moment prevented violence against living people rather than an act of vandalism. The statue will be fine. It stood for 125 years in all kinds of weather. A few days or a few weeks at the bottom of the docks will not cause damage to it in the way that violent interventions against living people would have. Um, but I think whether or not it was an, a totally right act by the protesters will be a longer term discussion that happens through the courts, whether or not they're proceeded with a prosecution or not. Okay. Um, Samuel, it seems very natural to ask you, did the police do the right thing on the day? As Melissa's pointed out, I think it, it, this is going to be a, a conversation that continues for, for some time. Uh, I recognize that, um, that there were a limited number of officers and there was uh, an excess of, uh, of crowd, uh, far in excess of what was expected. I think they expected around four or 6,000. There was in excess of, of 10,000. And so I, I'm really sympathetic with our officers. And actually, I, I think our officers uh, were fantastic on that day uh, and, and they acted absolutely appropriately however should they have intervened now that's a different different question for me because that's a question around policing strategy 
Um, and were there enough police officers there present? Again, that's a question about policing strategy. That's not about our officers. That, uh, that is about um, our police and crime commissioner. That is about senior uh, officers in the force who make those decisions. And I think that fundamentally, the police presence was insufficient for the size of that march. Uh, actually, I think they, there could and should have been some intervention from it being pulled down. Uh, but I understand that with the, uh, with the strategy that was deemed fit by the powers that be, made it very difficult for the officers on the street to actually step in and do that. So uh, if that's fair that to It would have back. been a really unwise thing to do. Even if the police had were double that number, they would still have been far uh, outnumbered. And to, uh, I, I see sort of like potential parallels of what happened at Whitehall. Would you really want to put police officers' lives at risk when they were so clearly outnumbered? No, I wouldn't. No, I wouldn't, actually, um, in all honesty. Um, I think Melissa makes absolutely the, the right point that uh, I think we would all rather see a lump of bronze be pulled down than a, a body or uh, a number of people, whether police or not, or, or, or protesters, uh, wounded. I mean, I, I, they're, they're not comparable, actually. Um, however, there are, are ways of policing that don't need conflict that defuse situations. And I think that the decision that was taken with the resources that they had there ensured that actually the, the, the demonstrations were wholly peaceful. And, and I think we need to recognize that. And so I think the debate, in a sense, whether they did the right thing or the wrong thing, I'm not a specialist on uh, law and order strategy, um, I think there could have been better strategy, it could have been stronger presence, and it could have stopped that from that statue from toppling. Um, however, I think with the resources they had, it ensured that the present uh, the the the, um, the demonstrations uh, proceeded without any injury. Uh, remarkable, actually, for that number of people. I mean, blimey, you'd rather have police superintendent Andrew Bennett in charge of that situation than what we saw in London, let alone what you're seeing in America. Oh, I, I, I just thought his, his sort of West Country common sense, you know, here's how I read the situation and we'll take it in the chin. And, you know, you can criticise me if you want, but you weren't the operational policeman on the day. It was what I sort of got from his comments. And I loved the way he was completely backed up by his uh, by his line management. I think. I think some of the fear, I mean, you know, Richard Eddy, again, we keep quoting him, but he, he talks about a frenzied thug at violence. You know, I think some of the anxiety from sort of law and order oriented people, I think the Home Secretary I put in this category as well. We don't want a situation where the police lose control of the streets. I mean, that way madness lies and and the policing has to be with with the consent of people who are there. Clearly, I think it's technically correct to say that criminal damage was committed, and I'm sure the people who did it are prosecutable, and how that prosecution might play out, who knows. What outcome would you like to see, Melissa, if they go to court? I, I would like to see them acquitted. I mean, I, if it was me, I would not want them to be taken to court at all. 
um, I was reading up on this. They are obviously liable for criminal damage. It was an act of vandalism. It was an act of violence. But I think what well, ultimately... Well, was it really? You, what you're, what we are assuming that laws are immutable. And therefore, we're saying, what we're saying is perhaps based on the laws, but was, was the law, is the law right in this case? Exactly. Exactly. I think the laws that are on the books now, my understanding is that they were in violation of those laws. What may happen is that, and again, I'm not a lawyer. I'm I think not, it's crim criminal damage, isn't it? And also planning law. It's criminal damage. And planning law. It's yes. a violation of planning law to, to change a listed, listed monument. <laughs> The, yes. the, city, the city council could, of course, retrospectively issue planning permission for the removal they, of the statue and dumping it in the harbour. They, they well could. And it also sounds like the, the council and the heritage organisation responsible for the listings don't seem to think that it was... How shall I say this? They're not... They don't seem enthused about pursuing a conviction, which, if I was involved in... in the, the Crown Prosecution Service, I would take that seriously under advisement that the people to, who are ultimately responsible for the property and the object are not necessarily looking to make a statement prosecution about this. And I think that will be, again, a longer story that plays out. I would not like to see them prosecuted, but I would understand legally how that might proceed and happen would you like to be on the jury <laughs> i would i would love to be on any jury um i think yeah. i think that would be it would be a very interesting case law they don't understand their own history and it is only now that actually a lot of british people are beginning to under the normal the average british person is beginning to understand what empire meant a lot of people will say, oh, let's go for empire and everything, don't seem to actually understand what that means. Do you not, do you think that perhaps it is a... Um, An educational a, issue, almost. ...knowledge mm. that is fueling the movement? A number of things. I think there is an education piece that is, uh, when I think of um, my secondary school education, I don't remember any, uh, maybe one or two classes on uh, our empire, but it was not really getting to the depths of, of what British, the British empire uh, was. For, for good and bad, I, I don't mean that in a, uh, in, in a oh, awful, just, you know, in, I think in Eddie Izzard's uh, comic stance is going around putting flags in things. Uh, you know, I, I mean, we, the education system, I think, has probably failed to tell the full story of, uh, of empire and of colonialism. And, and we need to understand that uh, colonialism is fundamentally a violent act and, and the impact that that has generationally um, it, it has generational impact. I, I was uh, reading, of course, uh, they pulled down uh, a statue of Leopold II. Yeah. Um, and, you know, uh, estimates between 1 to 15 million. I think people tend to fall on 10 million Congolese that he, he brutally uh, used to advance his empire. Uh, we have 
we have a similar history and we need to understand it. Again, I'm really keen not to point the finger, but just to better understand ourselves so that we can have a true history. And that's what I don't think we're very good at because my second point is that I made earlier is we're very polarized. And so we're not very good at looking at uh, the negative actions of the past and saying, isn't that interesting? How do we learn for the future? Rather, we say that's good or bad. You're right and wrong. And what you, which side you put yourself on, you're either a racist bigot or, or something else. So, so that's a real issue as well. And we need to be able to move past that to have a much more grown up intellectual conversation about, about our history. Samuel, there are clearly racist bigots and there is clearly a tendency of white supremacy. I mean, Cecil Rhodes is explicit about it and his statue is controversial. And I think Churchill, uh, who uh, obviously had certain strengths, was clearly racist. And so we have the, the controversy. And then we get onto this whole question of you know, the list of statues. And Leopold II, I think, is, is, is you know, an egregious <laughs> offender on this sort of stuff. We've got Dundas. Uh, the Wills building in Bristol, I think, is an interesting case. There's memorials in Bath Abbey to, 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 to slavers. We've got the Vector Tower. I, I, thought, I think it's interesting on the educational front. It is interesting to me to see the Daily Mail, which is a paper which I'm not often very comfortable reading, just setting out a whole list of the individuals who are identified in this new Topple the Racists interactive map website. And they say, well, who are these people? And they do it in a very Daily Mail binary way. They're the good things and the bad things. And one might not agree with it word for word, but it, this is surely a process of education about our past, which is sort of starting, you know, in an unexpected place and in an unexpected way. You know, we, we've said the question that's maybe troubling law and order people is, we don't want the police to lose control of the streets. I think the question that really troubles people sympathising with Black Lives Matter and the protesters is how widespread and how influential is that tendency towards white supremacy, that instinctive feeling, you know, as Richard Eddy wrote to me, um, you know, that Britain up till 1945 was a white culture and that shouldn't be sort of expunged. It's a, a, a latent racism that, that isn't merely symbolic, but is, is kind of real. How widespread is it? And how do we find out how widespread it is? Yeah, um, I grew up in the Cotswolds, as uh, I mentioned before, and I grew up not, I would, I would say, not a subject of racism. But I did grow up a subject of being patted on the head when I uh, still had some, um, being said, you know, oh, that's a nice curly top, or uh, my brother and I being called, oh, the Moors uh, down the road, or... It, now, we today, and this is, you know, this is 30 years ago or whatever, uh, we today, and probably back then as well, would say, well, that's racist. Um, but would we march on the streets uh, yelling and, uh, and waving placards? Or would we recognise that society does move uh, and there is ignorance about, uh, about different cultures and about understanding? And there's sometimes willful ignorance and there's sometimes lack of knowledge or lack of understanding ignorance and we need to just define uh, d differentiate between the two i think 
I get that for sure, but there is also deliberate, actively hostile policy, isn't there? Like the hostile environment and the implications of that, the Windrush and the outcome of that. One feels a reluctance to investigate discrepancies in COVID deaths. And then there's a whole list of you know, deaths in police custody and a tendency to say, oh, well, you know, the British police aren't like the American police. Well, clearly there's a question of scale, but I mean, we, we do actually have a real problem, here. as well as the nuanced area, which you spoke of. We clearly do have an actual problem of deliberate policies being implemented, which cause real suffering on racial grounds, don't we? We do. I think we do. I think we can't avoid that. It's, uh, what, one of the things I want to say, though, is... Um, Samuel, do you not feel that your wealth also cushioned you in a way that the majority of black people in this country don't have that protection? But, well, no, I, I don't, because um, irrespective of the fact that I had uh, um, the wonderful privilege of growing up in in rural Cotswolds that was as a result of I lived I grew up in a, a parish house uh, that belonged to my uh, well it belonged to the parish that my grandfather was a, a vicar of um, but in a single parent family um, uh, a single parent wealthy my family was, my mother was not working she she cared for us and I was home educated actually she she educated us at home um, I don't come from a wealthy background I don't call myself lacking in privilege because I absolutely think it was a privilege to grow up in the Cotswolds and have that experience. But that was not because of money. Uh, that was because of uh, family breakdown and, and, and all of those things that life deals with you, uh, deals you with. And, and I think for me, the real privilege that I had uh, was the fact that I had a grandfather who um, was a strong male role model. Uh, my mother was very deliberate at uh, ensuring that I had other black, good black male role models who would come and visit, you know, uncles and, and the like. And I had that investment in me. And for me, a lot of the issue that we see um, is it comes down to some of these issues around family and education in the home is where I learnt about my identity and, and gave me that passion and energy to stand up against those systematic injustices that we do have and, for, and, and has directed me into politics because I think it's all well and good if you want to, if you want to protest peacefully, absolutely. If you want to make your voice heard by that, that's, that's your right. Uh, it's my right and sometimes I have but I want to see sustained systematic change and reform where they need to be changed and reformed. And we need a diverse conversation within that. And so we need people, we need people from Black Lives Matter. This is what we really need in my view. If you are committed to the cause of Black Lives Matter, you need to stand for election, stand for election against me in Bristol for the mayoral election next year. Let's drive the conversation and have the conversation in the democratic spaces so that we can achieve the sustainable social reform that we want. I've never heard of any big revolutions that took place without some degree of um, public unrest. It just, people in the establishment um, don't just, hand over power or, or, or give up their space um, quite so willingly. But um, 
I don't want to, uh, to bang on about that because I, I think we uh, we have so many more questions for you guys. And um, no, but, uh, I, 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 I do just want to pick up on it just re very briefly because I think what's an interesting point is I've spent the last few months actually uh, spending a lot of time researching William Wilberforce, of course, influential, uh, fundamental in the abolition of the slave trade. There was no huge campaigns and marches and thousands of people marching on Westminster to, uh, to petition the, abolish, uh, the, uh, the abolition. There were people fighting for it, absolutely. And there was solid social reform that was backed up with people in positions to get it done. And I think that what I'm saying is, it doesn't have to be uh, right, it certainly doesn't have to be rioting. It can be protest and should be protest. And it needs to be coupled with the social reform and the legislative change to get stuff done. It, it can be uh, reform, it doesn't need to be rebellion. Melissa, mm -hmm. standing uh, perhaps a little bit um, uh, distant from the, the foray, does Britain strike you as a nation at ease with its slave trading past? And how is that best reflected or helped with public art? I don't think it's at all at ease with its slave trading past, and the United States isn't either. Um, my secondary education, like Samuel's, touched on some of these issues, but certainly not in a way that would allow a contemporary person, especially a white person like I am, to really appreciate or understand not only the atrocities at the time, but their continuing effect. And I know that in 2018, there was an installation in front of the Colston statue, which with human, I think a hundred human figures and some words demonstrating, which demonstrated how the impact of the slave trade was still relevant in Bristol in the immediate lives and work of people, black people in Bristol, that those kinds of artistic interventions go some way, but until there can be a, a discussion which really acknowledges the fact that these are still ongoing issues and it's not just the past or history, that it has continuing huge implications Colston's money is still being used in Bristol, that these are not issues that we can just say, we're done, it's in the past. And there seem to be a lot of people who are very unwilling to face that today, going by comments on Twitter. Um, yeah. And that it's just, it, people. some people are just not ready to address it. And until that happens, neither country is going to be able to have a real frank conversation about it. I mean, Colston's money and the use of it isn't, isn't wholly benign. I know he gave it to charities, but my personal journey on this was um, at our Quaker meeting, a friend raised the concern. They were a teacher at Colston's school. And they said, I, I find it problematic that once a year, all the pupils, including black pupils and including Islamic pupils, have to, they're frog marched down to the church to celebrate the founder. And when you go into that, it's not that comfortable an idea. There's a, there's a forced and enduring relearning of history. And my daughter's school plays Colston's school. 
And I, I started to weigh on me. I didn't know what to do about it. So I, I literally ended up buying a Bob Marley sweatshirt so I could go as a parent and support my daughter. Play. And that sort of precedes my journey of getting involved in Fairfield House. Melissa, so, um, listen, listen uh, imagine you're appointed curator of Bristol City Centre. You've got total discretion. You know, you've got a, you've got a free pass on planning law and, and, a, and a massive budget. What do you do? I fish it out of the harbour after a significant amount of time. Tempers must have cooled to where it can be done safely. I think it goes, the plinth stays up. It does not get erased as everybody seems to be afraid. The, the plinth, I've seen quite a lot of suggestions that it become a sort of fourth plinth in the way that the Trafalgar Square was. I That's what I would do is invite a range of artists to temporarily intervene in the site um, with a significant budget. And not just black artists, although they should be given preference and primary options um, for at least quite a bit of time going. The statue in my world would be brought into the museum, conserved as it is, not restored, and Contextualized, I understand that the museum has already started collecting signs that were left around the plinth. Um, there's already an ongoing conversation with how to conserve the moment, which can be quite difficult, and to contextualize it in the museum. I would use, given my brother's huge budget, no constraints, <laughs> large video screens of the actual event happening interviews with people involved, interviews with people who are opposed to it, um, and have the statue on display permanently, but contextualized with both the history of the slave trade, its impact in Bristol, and the events surrounding it coming down. Um, no effort made to hide or cover either the positive or the negatives. Um, but I think it, it becomes much more interesting as a work of art from the position of a culture historian with a bit of damage on it. Once it comes out with the hole in it, um, there was a piece that fell off. I really want to know what happened to the piece that fell off. Um, but I think conserving it in the museum space is absolutely necessary. No, yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm, I'm just wondering if you've already got the job. <laughs> <laughs> I wish. I think it should go to somebody from Bristol. Um, as much as I would love a job like that, that's sort of the dream job. I think in this case, it absolutely needs to go to somebody with very strong ties to the community, not somebody who's come in from the outside with very strong opinions, um, but somebody who can actually have those productive conversations and is a major supporter in the community, because they'll be the ones who can do the proper job of making sure it's relevant to the community in the long term and that's what really matters okay but I, hiring, I take a job i think i think you're absolutely right in that I, I i do think that you know um it should go to um someone from bristol so somewhere at the beginning of our conversation we talked about sort of your racial sort of identity and you mentioned that this was like really the first time that you were addressing it yourself, having that discussion. In a uh, city with such a diverse mi mix, 
and such a, uh, a and quite an intense history of um, of race and racism. Um, do you think you are the right person? Would be the right person to represent not just um, the white part, the the uh, of a conservative voice, but also the black voice, which is very very important at this juncture in history. Are you the right person? Uh, okay, um, fundamentally yes, uh, but uh, a number of things. I think it's it's not the white conservative voice. Um, I think to conflate the two is, is wrong. Um, there are many people of many ethnic uh, backgrounds and identities uh, who are conservatives also. And so we, we, we've got to recognize that. And that's a, that's a narrative that I'm really passionate about informing and changing actually. Um, so, so, so that, that's unhelpful, although, although, although common. Um, and to pick up on the point, the, um, my self-understanding, I, uh, I've spent my, my whole life has been uh, full of understanding my uh, ethnic identity. Uh, however, this is the last, you know, this last few days is the first time that I have by other people been so aggressively positioned as either black or mixed or white or asked about my identity. I have up until this point pretty much been a person getting on with life who happens to have a Jamaican father who came here during the Windrush era and a white mother who met in my grandfather's parish in Gloucester uh, where there is a significant number of Windrush generation. Uh, I grew up and have embraced the, the fullness of that identity, explored the fullness of, of that identity uh, to a great extent and have a good understanding of the challenges from both sides. I just think what's really interesting about this last, this last few days, but also I think the, the sort of the, the political, almost the socio-political attitude that we have at the moment uh, tends to polarize and tends to separate. And I think what's really interesting is it's uh, sort of an, an illiberal liberalism that's, that recognizes, you know, we've all got our own individual identity. And because we've all got our own individual identity, we're actually so disconnected and we've forgotten how to recognize what connects us. And what I want to say is that there's much more that connects us than separates us. And we need to work much harder at finding what unites us as, as modern Britons as 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 modern citizens of the world than identifying what separates us and shouting at one another that my individual identity matters of course it does of course it does now let's move on and figure out how we work together as a society good so where um assuming you get elected as mayor of bristol what would you do next what would you like to see happen and last question how do you think Bristol should remember Colston? Two huge questions. Um, the first question, what happens next? There, there are many issues across Bristol and there, we've touched on some of the injustices. When I travel around the city, uh, I, I hear really regularly 
from communities in different parts, different parts of the, of the city, that they feel left behind. And I hold that as central to, uh, to who I am and what I feel passionate about, that everybody has a fair and equal voice and that uh, the necessary reforms, the necessary mechanisms are put in place for that voice to be heard. And so there are injustices around housing, around work, around fair pay, around equal pay, around environmental issues, around transport, uh, around pollution. All of these need addressing and all of those uh, I'll be looking at and, and have commented on and could continue to comment on. What happens with Colston? Uh, for me, it has to start with now uh, picking up that democratic conversation. Uh, the, those 17 or so people who pulled the statue down uh, have, I think, fundamentally informed and shaped that narrative, uh, which, hasn't, uh, which wasn't a democratic process. Now is a time for city leadership uh, to to really pick up and facilitate a conversation. I um, I like what Melissa was saying about that uh, uh, her ideas. Uh, I like what uh, Banksy came out with and suggested. Um, I think yeah. a, a nice image. Uh, I think we need to recognise and celebrate the amazing creativity that Bristol is so well known for. And, and, and really build upon that, a democratic process that builds a new legacy and tells a new story about who we are as Bristol going forward, not forgetting or whitewashing our past, but deliberately saying this is who we are and this is who we want to be and are for the future. I think that's a really exciting opportunity, actually. Okay, so you're, you're optimistic about the future? I am, yeah, I'm very optimistic about the future. I think it's real. I think it is exciting. I think that I think there's an exciting option if we can if we can be mature about it. If we can face this head on, I think it, it presents a really good opportunity. Uh, stop sort of filibustering and shouting yeah. this and that, and just get on with it. I think. Yeah. I, I do struggle with how much of the informed debate is kind of willful tone deafness and ill informedness, and how much is a sort of yeah. Desire to suppress yeah. black people, which which is has to be sort of rooted out and identified as malevolent and so on. Yeah. 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 I think it's it's the discussion around the statues coming down has changed dramatically in the past five years. Um my father is sort of a very typical 70-year-old centrist law and order type. Um and I when I told him that I was going to be doing this. I anticipated him to be much more on the side of, oh, they shouldn't come down, they should stay up so that the history isn't erased. And because that's what he had been saying sort of five years ago, but the mood seemed to have changed outside the very vocal, willful claims to sort of an unbiased history that people seem to be making around leaving them up. So I think it is gonna be, very interesting to see what happens. And I really hope that Bristol can take the lead on this and contextualize this well. Shall I, shall I close matters? Melissa, is there anything final you'd like to add? No, I think it's, I think like Samuel said, the 17 people who pulled it down started a conversation that 
is going to have global implications. And I think it's very interesting that Bristol is the place that it, it started. And I think what happens in Bristol now and going forward will continue to shape the global discussion around what happens to these statues. And the next few weeks and months are going to be incredibly exciting times for sort of sculpture historians, public historians. And I know Bristol has uh, Dr. Olivet Otele, who has, I think, very interesting and important things to say. So Bristol seems to be at the center of really exciting global discussions. And it's going to be fascinating to watch. It's your moment, the sculpture historians, isn't yes, it? The sculpture historians for the win. Bristol Blooming, relevant. <laughs> Bristol Blooming nicked Olivet Otelli from Bath. She was at um, Bath Spy University. We were very happy to have her here. She's not that far away. Listen, it's been a splendid conversation. Thank you both so much for joining us. Um, I, one thing that's troubled me a bit in reading around and researching this conversation is I think that there is, there has always been a, a bit of an attempt to, systematic ignorance and attempt to suppress any black British history which precedes 1945. So um, we, we, I'll, I'll do a close for the programme, but I wanted to test on you whether you feel this close is appropriate. Okay, so listen carefully. Um, streaming from the palace of the noble and distinguished African emperor who lived in our midst for five years, a man who by any objective measure and by some distance is the most eminent and internationally influential person ever to have resided in the West of England. His Imperial Majesty, Haile Selassie I. This has been in our city. Is that okay? I mean, is that true? Yeah? I think it probably is true. I, I think so. He's quite a guy. He really is. Will you come and visit us in Fairfield House when, when, when travel permits and so forth? I would love to. I was supposed to come to Bristol, in fact, before all of this to do some work on some of the sculpture in the museum there. Oh. So I would absolutely come to Bath and to Bristol. Come and visit. Samuel, will you come and visit the House of His Imperial Majesty? I'd love to. I'd love to. It's a completely different narrative on black identity in Britain. We have a small gift waiting for you as and when you come, and we look forward to seeing you. Yeah. Thank you so much. It's a real privilege to be part of it. Yeah, thank you. It was great. So, this has been In Our City. I'm William Heath. I'm Oluwatosi Onileri. Stay tuned to Imperial Voice. How do you see Haile Selassie in, in faith terms? I, uh, really, uh, a really interesting figure. Um, I wouldn't say he... Uh, I didn't see him as a prophet. Well, no, I did see him as a prophet, actually. I did see him as a prophet. Um, in that I see a lot of people as prophetic. Um, and I, I think he spoke very powerfully and led very powerfully in a very prophetic way. Uh, that. So I don't know if you've seen the Guardian article about uh, the Anglican Church today um, and the systematic racism uh, that, that they've come out with. And oh it's a really, really uncomfortable place. But my experience of writing about dread within the Anglican Church is the fact that they fundamentally, as an institution, cannot comprehend the 
looking to want someone like Haile Selassie, Selassie as a as a as a prophetic figure. Yeah. Because he doesn't fit the the norms. He doesn't fit the proper narrative. Yeah. Uh, and he doesn't fit the the cultural narrative yeah. that the Anglican Church is fundamentally within their their whole ecclesiology, within their liturgy. 